primary care knowledge-based hypertension, what's new? Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, today we are speaking to Dr. Asim Mishra again. Um, he was with us a few episodes ago now um, where he talked about lipid management um, and we've brought him back today um, to tell us all about hypertension and um, to talk us through um, some of the changes um, to the new Greater Manchester guidance. Yeah, so it's great because we cover the diagnosis and what's changed there with the diagnosis as well as some of the points about uh, management that have changed. But right up top when we asked him about why is blood pressure important and we had this conversation really about why is cardiovascular disease important previously and basically we got the we got the opportunity today to um record his poem spoken word about it um so we do that right up top to orientate ourselves and i think you guys will enjoy it and then we before we cover the points that we mentioned just then yeah, so um, we hope you find it useful. We certainly did um, find it a nice update. Um, it's quite a nice, easy lesson, lots of punchy detail. Um, so hopefully it's helpful. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, my name's Asim, or Dr. Asim Asha. I'm an academic uh, GP registrar in my last year, in the last few months. And over the last year and a half, I've been lucky or fortunate enough to be CVD prevention lead in Greater Manchester. So trying my bit to, to help us as we try really hard across the system, moving into integrated care, to try to make our life better and the life of people better that we see each day. Yeah, very worthy cause, definitely, as we'll talk a bit more about. And um, we've really enjoyed the behind the scenes discussion we had about the importance of managing cholesterol and hypertension and all the other risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Um, can you tell us why we're talking about blood pressure today? Yeah, of course. We're talking about blood pressure for a few reasons. Um, firstly, blood pressure, high blood pressure, hypertension uh, is one of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease. The other big reason that we're talking about it today is because of the link with inequalities, um, which is huge. And especially in, in Greater Manchester, where 40% of our population is in the two highest deprivation deciles. This is really significant. People in the most deprived deaths are four times more likely to die early from cardiovascular disease. Um, and a lot of that is thought to be mediated through hypertension. Hypertension itself, of course, is, you know, disease, illness, health. Uh, these are all slightly overlapping, interrelated words. Hypertension is almost a, a risk factor, which leads to some more significant problems uh, like heart attacks and strokes and angina um, as well. That was a perfect introduction and we're not expecting you to cover everything about hypertension that ever was. We're just sort of looking for a little update really. But before we start um, off mic, we talked about a poem that you've done that was based around, well, you can introduce it. You can tell us a bit about what led you to write it or how, how it came about. And then if you want to read it, because I think it's ace. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been writing raps and poems mostly for myself in the last few years as a as a way of a creative outlet. This particular poem I wrote, however, because 
I'm aware that CVD is, and hypertension is not new. People have always died from cardiovascular disease, um, dementia, cancer, and CVD have often been the top three killers. Um, however, things have changed, and a large part of the problem with hypertension and CVD is the complexity and overlaps uh, between clinical factors and wider and social demographic factors. So when people have heard about something a lot, uh, the poem was really designed, I wrote it to try and help spread a message and, and really help people to, to sit and, and think a little bit about what we do every day. Um, in context with the wider landscape and society. Yeah. So, do you want to take it away? You see, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I've been wondering what's up, what more is left. People dying and happy and all around stress. What can we do? What is bereft? I've come to realise that it's CVD. That's why it's a GM priority. We've got the highest rates off the majority. That's right the most in England, the most heart attacks and strokes on the mainland. And it's CVD that's the reason. Implicated, but what is the meaning? Let me tell you what it means to me with reason. CVD means vessel in heart disease, things like AF, cholesterol and BP. That's what people mean by the ABCs. Oh, and diabetes with its silent D. All these things cause buildup of plaques, heart failure strokes and heart attacks, menopause and celiacs all linked to CVD with tracks, not moving, overeating and smoking those packs are all part of the CVT tax. That's all fine, I hear you say. We've got lots of treatments that will keep these diseases at bay. A tube in a tube or a pessary or an injection or a pill from the apothecary it's simple treatment that these diseases need, and I've proved it by controlling everything in my RCT. That's all fine, but you've missed the parallax. The real problem and the hard facts, that the ABCDs and actually all LTCs are all associated with the freeze, with poverty, low education, and people with real pleas. That's right, the problem now isn't disease, it's people and actually meeting their needs. People are living longer now than ever. You might even think we're out of the cold weather, but we could be mistaken. He'd be rolling in his grave, our Lord Bevan. The differences are bigger now than ever. With life diverging, I don't think we've actually been that clever, and it seems it's CVD as the complex lever. However, I personally think there are things worse than death, like suffering in its purest sense. So CVD for me means much more than just ABCD. It means multimorbidity, premature mortality. It represents suffering, inequality and inequity. It means pain and disability, a life of poor quality, loss of brain and heart. That's just unnecessary. So let's stop this now and together. It's really not about one thing or another. We just need to work with each other. Treatments are of course important, but for me it's care, not treatment, people, not patients. A lack of this is why we're in our situation. So we need to ask ourselves, in 2023, what exactly is the role of medicine and what should it be? What does health actually mean to thee? Is it just being disease-free or something more? I know I'm chasing well-being on the whole. So what is it for you? Are we the National Disease Service? Or is it time we did something new?
That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I very much enjoyed that. I was in the zone there. Yeah. That's so good. Same. Yeah. Talk about scene settings. Like, why, why do any of us do this job? It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing it. Not at all. I guess a key part of the message in the poem and today is there are medical updates, I updates to do with medicines, but the way we do that with an individual is really important. And when talking about prevention, I think the way you have that consultation is what will make the difference in how well that person then engages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So I guess if we go back, right back to the basics um, for anyone listening who is quite early on their medical journey, um, can you remind us what hypertension is? Yeah, um, so hypertension is persistently raised high blood pressure. Depending on how early people are on the medical journey, I, I often describe it to, to patients that this is something we've made up in some respects for a lot of people um, because we know that the higher your blood pressure is the more at risk you are of certain things happening and there are things that we can do to lower people's blood pressure to within a more satisfactory range and I think that's basically what what high blood pressure or hypertension is being one of the key high risk conditions or risk factors relating to cardiovascular disease yeah grand and you mentioned about the updates um and things that have come in recently so um can you talk us through um some of the main points about diagnosing hypertension that you wanted to cover today absolutely i think the main point about diagnosing hypertension is i think in the past we would mostly think about ambulatory blood pressure monitoring as how we diagnose people i.e the cuff on on your arm that keeps squeezing you all through the night whereas the major update recently is that there is high quality uh, randomized control evidence that home blood pressure monitoring if done well is suitable for the diagnosis and assessment of high blood pressure it's a bit easier than people having to be woken up all night. So the first discussion on home blood pressure monitoring is really quite important. Um, I ended up in this position through my involvement with the NHS England BPM at Home Trailblazer last year, where I worked to implement home blood pressure monitoring in Stockport. And we had quite a lot of learning through that project and a lot of that learning has been turned into a toolkit which will be released very soon. Some of the main points to talk about um, is ensuring that patients have checked the size of their cuff. The size of the cuff will change the blood pressure more than the medicines will. Um, so it is really important that they check and they can check that with a tape measure or by asking their pharmacist or by looking at the markings on the, the cuff. Um, the second thing is that there's a general blanket advice that the monitor is less than five years old. Again, if patients are really struggling uh, with finances and so on, they could check their monitor against a practice one which should be calibrated. Um, the third point is actually asking them if they are comfortable in doing their own readings. 
often times uh, when I ask people they're either doing it every day or every week or every month or not doing it unless we have that discussion with people they, they don't get that information from anywhere else really and there's no point in them doing it if we're not going to change something and it can be quite a nice way of uh, winning them over in a way that actually they a lot of people I speak to anyway presume I want them to do it every day or every week right. or every month yeah. and it's quite a nice way of being like well let's just get you controlled and we just repeat the assessment until you are and then we can leave it mm -hmm. for however long that yeah. is six months to one year the final point and it's really important to raise is that I, I know you know we've got these fantastic digital tools available to us and we absolutely have to use them uh, with the people they work well with but you need a smartphone and you need internet to reply to AccuRx mm -hmm. um, and if you can't tell from your computer if someone has a smartphone then we can't really batch Flory people and expect the blood pressure readings to come back yeah. so a big part of the toolkit and what we did in Stockport was as we had that first discussion with people we created two new registries a non-digital home blood pressure monitoring registry and a digital one and now there's an alert on those computers that says digital or non-digital and next year we can then batch message everyone on digital because we know that we've talked to them already we know they're comfortable and we know they can respond right. it's really important we ask people's preferences and if they want to give if they would prefer to do it on paper uh, i think you know access is extremely important have you got a good link to a paper version of doing your home blood pressure monitoring out of interest absolutely so we we have a it's in the toolkit as well. Yeah, brilliant. As part of the toolkit, there's a an Excel document, and you can put your practice name in there, yeah. and at the end, and export as a PDF, and then print it out. Brilliant. And it's quite good because it limits how many readings they can put down. Yeah. Um. There used to be two guidelines. One was around hypertension with diabetes, and that was a different kettle of fish to hypertension without diabetes. Has that changed? Um, it's changed in the sense that the targets are now the same. Yeah. So you would treat uh, someone with diabetes and hypertension to the same target as someone with just hypertension. Right. There are some caveats to that which we can get onto later. Uh, for example, uh, if you've had a stroke, the target is lower. And also if you have CKD and protein in your urine, if the protein is very high, um, above 70 uh, milligrams per millimole, then we also aim for a lower target. And it's again, it's a way of us personalizing our medicine to individuals that the higher an individual's cardiovascular risk i.e they've already had a stroke or protein in their urine which is an independent cardiovascular risk factor in itself the lower we're aiming their blood pressure urine acrs are so important 
So if you, for essential hypertension, just as the standard hard figures, what would class as having high blood pressure? So anything above, um, and again, the targets are slightly different for in clinic and whether it's at home or ambulatory. Um, Quaff has now updated to reflect the different targets, mm-hmm. um, which is quite important because I know some practices were adding five to patients' home readings to bring them in line with clinic readings. We don't now need to do this anymore, but it does mean the coding becomes really important that we code clinic as clinic readings and home readings as average readings. Um, You have said to have high blood pressure if the clinic readings are above 140 over 90, Mm -hmm. and for home it's 135 over 85. So you're minus five from both of the numbers for the home readings. And has there been any changes um, to the guidance on how to, to do the home readings? Or is that still the same? Um, I don't know what the previous guidance was, to be honest, but there is some changes. Uh, It's much easier in some sense for people to do home readings, but there is some more uncertainty because patients uh, do what patients do. So, you know, when you discuss home blood pressure monitoring with people, it is quite important that that discussion happens and the the better it happens and the more time you spend with that person, the less you need to on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, it's a minimum of 12 readings to calculate an accurate average. And that can be two in the morning, two in the evening for four days. Sometimes we discard the first days of readings if you find that they're very high as people start to get used to them Um, and often people are instructed to keep repeating their blood pressure reading until it gets to a plateau um, which is kind of when they're most relaxed so they'll find that uh, the first one will be higher and the next one will be slightly lower and then the third one will be slightly lower or the same Uh, for example if you notice that AQRX text messaging thing it tells people to do three readings but I think they can only submit one which is their lowest one okay yeah because I was going to say of those 12 readings generally we've been advising patients to take two readings one after the other a minute between but just discard the first reading and only record the second one it is fair yeah I think it's advice can be different It's about managing that uncertainty. If they're very high, and we can always kind of sense check the the numbers, and if there are any significant changes on one day as to the others, that might be a bit odd. And while people first get used to it, they can take some time to make sure that it's the same way that they're measuring it each time. Yeah, and it's the advice is the it's the arm with the highest reading, isn't it? It can be. Um, again, it's best that the first time they do it, they could always do both sides yeah. and then stick with one side after that. Perfect. So moving on to management. Um, so what points are the, about hypertension management would you like to highlight for us today? Yeah, so, you know, there's no new medicines in hypertension mm, management. Yeah. 
it's really in context with the pressures and the problem we have in Greater Manchester come up with a new hypertension medication pathway. And it is based on NICE and it doesn't contradict NICE. Uh, whereas NICE is a bit more open with when you titrate up. Uh, mm -hmm. Ours is a bit more, I was going to say prescriptive, not quite prescriptive, um, just trying to make it easier and quicker for both us um, and the people we see. The more titrations it takes to get someone's blood pressure under control, the more likely they are not to come back at the end of it or be bothered about their blood pressure. And that first time they're diagnosed, often it's the first time we're talking to people about medicines or illness. And it's a really valuable moment for behavior change. Yeah. And once they come back three, four times, they don't have they don't have yeah. symptoms nothing's changed yeah. they don't feel any worse yeah it's just a hassle to them yeah and so that's a lot about what this is about some of the key features there's two major key features um, on here starting with the first one people with very high blood pressures and i'm talking about a clinic blood pressure greater than 160 over 110 mm. or a home average greater than 155 over 105 yeah we are suggesting offering people two medicines at lower doses mm. to begin with you know there's no one medicine that will lower your blood pressure by more than 10 millimoles of mercury the large majority of those people may require two medicines anyway. Mm. Um, and I think this is an open discussion to have with people and why our skills and how we have it might need to be even better because mm. now we're coming with two medicines yeah. instead yeah. of one right at the beginning. But it is an open discussion with the person and medicines are one of lots of things yes. that we can do. Um, but we do know that the medicines work as well. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the kind of major updates. Just to get away from that, what do they call it when it's that clinical inertia type feeling to get away from the clinical inertia, crack on, bring it down, talk about lifestyle, but yeah, just, just crack on essentially. Yeah. yeah and, and you hear, I went to a talk by one of the endocrinologists and I think the diabetes, everyone's talking about treating aggressively mm. at the moment. Yeah. I don't think that this really constitutes treating aggressively considering most of these people might be on to anyway. Mm -hmm but it saves on some of the processes and steps. Just to note that Cochrane and NICE did look at starting with dual therapy and the evidence wasn't good enough for them to update it in the guideline at that time. They didn't find any increased evidence of rates of side effects in any of the studies, but most of the studies were low quality. European and American guidelines have suggest starting with two and a large majority of people because it's all about time in threshold, if you will, or time under threshold. Mm -hmm. People are more likely to be within target for longer in this way. That's a really, yeah, it's worthwhile taking some time over. Um, any other points about the management of hypertension? The other big 
point here, and I, I know it's often what I hear back as the main bit of feedback when people look at our pathway, is that we have gone for lisinopril instead of ramipril. Mm. We do not suggest that anyone's stable is switched over their medication, and I just want to make that absolutely clear. Okay. Ramipril is biologically shorter-acting, and if we're talking about population health, any marginal gain may be quite substantial impact on a population level. Yeah. And so lisinopril is longer acting than ramipril is. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has a lot more dose choices as well. So those are the reasons why we've gone for lisinopril. And the third thing, similar to the first point, is that a lot of medicines, much like the statin, the the higher you move the dose, the less increase in effect. It's like diminishing returns. So I know a lot of people start on amlodipine 5 milligrams and then you'll move it to 10 milligrams. Amlodipine at 5 milligrams is 80% of the effect of amlodipine at 10 milligrams. Yet, amlodipine at 10 is much more likely to give you ankle Ankle swelling. swelling. Yep. Yeah. So, our suggestion is it's better to be on multiple medications at lower doses, as in more clinically effective, Mm. than one at higher doses. Being on three at lower doses would be even more effective. But... In terms of implementation, change, polypharmacy, all those things, we've decided to cut a balance. Yeah. And so our pathway, it suggests two if it's very high blood pressure, but if it's not, start on one. And if it's still not controlled, then suggest adding a second instead of increasing that first one. Okay. And again, this is a discussion that you could have right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, yeah because of the asynchronous nature of blood pressure results coming through at different times and it's quite good to air this out straight up so you can have that chat with people yeah, and see, see what, what really matters to them because if taking it's bad enough taking one medicine I really don't want to take two then yeah you're going to have a very different conversation in a way absolutely and um, there's also some updates in that Uh, In terms of ACE inhibitors, um, there's some evidence, and it is in the NICE CKS guidelines, um, that suggest using angiotensin receptor blockers if people are of black African or African-Caribbean origin instead of ACE inhibitors, just as routine, um, due to less incidence of side effects and problems. We've just had a lot of hot weather. Thing. It's just um, it's just been an interesting summer. A lot of side effects from uh, hypertension medicines this summer, with people's blood pressures dropping significantly, and lots of postural hypertension uh, in the elderly, in particular. Um, it's a difficult balance. <laughs> it is a difficult balance, and uh, the targets I said earlier were for those less than eighty. I guess with the the target being a bit higher in those um, 80 plus there is something about medicines and taking them or not taking them and it, it seems that some of the studies where they've 
tested for hypertension medicines when patients have come to hospital. I found mm-hmm. that almost more than 90% of patients on four blood pressure medicines aren't taking them, mm-hmm. which is why they're high. Um, and I think we've got to remember that people keep changing and their weight might be changing and there's lots of things that keep changing. Mm-hmm. We talked about Q-risk and cholesterol, but Q-risk is also something, uh, you know, you may get a blood pressure result and may want to do their Q-risk, yeah. which that may then change, which then changes some other things mm-hmm. as well. I would definitely be more wary if people have an increased risk of falls and things like vision problems and mobility issues. And in that case, I think it is a more, you know, if we're leaving the targets aside, I would be more wary in those patients. So moving on to probably the opposite side of the coin, uh, what scenarios would make you suspicious for a secondary cause of hypertension? So the the NICE guidelines suggest that we consider secondary causes of hypertension um, when people have high blood pressure and they're less than 40. I think that is something really important for us to think about, um, particularly if you see odd or perhaps unexpected uh, electrolyte disturbances like a high sodium or low and or low potassium uh, as well. There is a rise in metabolic syndrome at younger ages um, and a rise in people at very high weights and quite young people with type 2 diabetes. It could be that hypertension is part of that syndrome. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I think anyone less than 40 with high blood pressure, it's definitely worth a thought and if there are any um, concerns or even questions that the renal or the cardiology specialists are absolutely um, more than happy to advise us on who they feel who they feel we should refer or give us advice on what we could do for the test. Um, and uh, is there anyone else who should have referral to um, a hypertension clinic? I think on the other end of the spectrum, so if people are not controlled on four medicines and you're pretty sure that they're taking them, then absolutely they, they're happy to, to receive referrals and give us advice on that aspect of things. I do know, I mean, having looked at some of the data in Manchester CCG, of about 45,000 people on the hypertension register, um, there's about 200 who are on three medicines and have had a repeat blood pressure, which is still high. So the numbers are small in terms of resistant hypertension. You know, things like sleep apnea, alcohol, drugs, and not taking your medicines are really much more likely reasons why someone's blood pressure would be high Um, but having said all of that that is what the hypertension clinics therefore to to help help us with these kind of problems and issues great um and is there anything else i seen that that you think that we should have covered um on our chat about hypertension today um I suppose medication-wise, move to indapamide instead of bendroflumathiazide. 
some research about gout, increased risk of gout with benzodiazepine. I think it was quite commonly prescribed, so I do quite regularly see people on it.、Mm. People are stable, but there's quite a lot of people with gout as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah.、Um, but yeah, so any other resources that you want people to take away? I think the toolkit we can link to that one, can't we? It's hot off the press, essentially, isn't it? It is. It's just being made at the moment. It is the first. Toolkit, for want of a better word,、mm. um, it's there to make our life easier. Because I, I trust we're all here to do the right thing, and I think a lot about how can I make the right thing the easiest thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what the toolkit's there for. So it, it's not massive new clinical pathways. It's just to try and make everyday tasks a bit simpler、yeah. on the ground and easier.、Yeah. We also. A slight plug, but on on the fourteenth of September,、uh, we have、uh, the Greater Manchester's Cardiovascular Disease Summit. It's a full day event. It's aimed at all healthcare professionals and wider as well, so care and clinical professionals within the integrated care system.、Mm-hmm. Andy Burnham will be coming. So hopefully he can start to understand about why CBD is so important yeah, as yeah. well, and it's a real opportunity for us to learn about all of the different people we work with and、yeah. what they do and what their part of the system looks like, and really talks on person-centered care, on data, on hypertension, lipids, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and cardiac rehab as well. It should be quite a An interesting event for people. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Is it?、Uh, does it cost much? It's free.、Hey. It's not sponsored by pharmaceutical pharma, and it is all about that wider understanding、um, to give people a bit of context. I think the ICS change is really ambitious, and the only way we'll get to integrated care is by learning how we all can work better together. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and so, yeah. What are the what are the big learning points? Do you want people to to take away from、um, the chat today? Now that they've listened the whole way through, I suppose big learning points are that while we can't, when you're in your practice clinic room, while we can't necessarily change the world and the some of the deeper, wider social demographic factors, there are things we can do and quite powerful things we can do. Uh, and that's a big message here. That I know that hypertension is not new, but we're still in the place we are today. In March, in Greater Manchester, it's only sixty-seven percent of the people we know have high blood pressure were treated to target. That's not quaff,、um, so that doesn't ex- include exemptions.、Mm. There is a lot we can do. You know, with medicines and the great multidisciplinary team we have in the primary care network now, that can really make a difference and help people have less pain and less disability, so that they can keep doing whatever they want to do. Yeah, thank you so so much. Yeah, thank you. It's a brilliant message. Yeah, exactly. It was so nice to chat to you again, Asim, and、um, yeah, thank you for bringing the the wider messages through, not just about how to treat hypertension and the changes to the guidance. It's nice to get your perspective. So thank you.
So Sarah, what uh, what did you take away from the um, chat today? It was so it was so nice to have a scene back, and obviously you guys were in person um, this time, which was um, yeah. probably lovely to be able to actually meet and have a good chat um, with them. So yeah, what did you take away? Oh uh, yeah, I think um, always start with the general points, and I think it is really important that it's that orientation. We were both saying about how when we first trained as GPs, we didn't really. It's just so arbitrary that the things that he's concentrating on his now passions are lipids and hypertension and they're not normally things that really excite us they're very sort of mundane bits of general practice and just how passionate he's become over the years when he's sort of thought about the health inequality side of it and how important it is to get right and what a massive difference in patients lives it can make um yeah i like that home blood pressure is easier um interesting about cuff size i did not realize that it makes more of a difference than a medicine does which is wild um and also that study he mentioned about that um people brought in with high blood pressure to hospital who were on four meds probably the concordance rate was incredibly low um which just reiterates that often we get into that trouble of just adding 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 instead of going okay what's going on here um, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I thought the orientation was really, um, really good and really important because there was a risk of doing an episode like this and it just became about what is the guidance. Let's just kind of tick off the box of, oh, this is what's changed. But actually, I think yeah. his yeah his orientation with that lens uh, just makes you see how important it is. Um, and things like he said that um, people in the most deprived areas are four times more likely to die from cardiovascular disease. Like that just feels so innately unfair. Mm. Um, like why should that be happening to them? Mm. Um, and as he said, that you, you you can't do stuff about the wider environment, about the situation that they're in, um, about changing all of that wider social stuff. But you can have an awareness of the fact that these people are at higher risk. Um, if you know you work in a deprived area, if you know that there are pockets of deprivation within your catchment, you can focus a little bit of your care in that area to make sure that those people's blood pressures are kept under control, because then that'll make a massive difference to their risk of dying um so yeah i just thought that was so important and um, for him to orientate um obviously sh- the sharing of his poem was just incredible really and um, so I, i'm just so impressed yeah. with how brave he was to share that um so yeah thank you asim again um yeah it's that point again um kind of tied into you saying about the four medicines and going into hospital the fact that um the more titrations that it takes the more likely you're going to have someone not come back um, and stop engaging and you can just definitely see it like busy yeah. working people potentially um who've not had a medical problem before in their life they feel fine like we said in the episode um they're not going to want to come back for all these appointments they're not going to have time to make all of these appointments to um look at it so yeah i think i understand the reason for going in a little bit more aggressively um in that guidance mm-hmm. i really like the toolkit it's got um good bits up top to um to remember about the lifestyle elements and to push that as well so we've definitely focused on some of the updates here that were all about the sort of medicines or the diagnosis but yeah really really good talk i'm glad they produced it and well done well done assume for your role in it so yeah we hope you enjoyed listening um and if you've got any feedback or comments please feel free to um, do our survey or write us a reviews that's always amazing thank you so much to people who've been filling in the surveys we've had some really lovely um food for thought on the survey so thank you until next time on primary care knowledge boost this podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of gp excellence Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public.
They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.